This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is shareable. The show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, everybody. It's Jeff. Welcome back to Shareable. Today's guest is going to be Mike Domish. This conversation was phenomenal. I had such a good time talking with Mike. I'm really sad that Caroline couldn't join as a co-host because, man, she would have absolutely loved this. Um, I met Mike um, earlier this year as a part of a speaker group I'm uh, a part of on Facebook, um, and I met him in Toronto um, when we all got together, and I was immediately blown away by his story, which uh, he goes into a little bit on the podcast, uh, but also just really... I, I respect the hell out of what he's doing in the world because he's someone who is standing up for what he believes in and trying to make the world a better place, which is a refreshing breath of fresh air, um, you know, just any time you hear about someone doing something like that. Uh, Mike is the founder of the Date Safe Project. Uh, he's also a speaker and an author. He's been doing what he does for about 27 years now, and uh, his goal is to dramatically improve society's approach to healthy dating. He also wants to create a better understanding of how consent is obtained in intimacy. He also uh, works on revealing keys to uh, effective bystander intervention, whether it is related to alcohol or sexual activity, and he wants to teach people how to properly support the survivors of, se- of sexual assault. And all of those things and more are just a a fraction of what you'll hear um, on today's podcast with Mike. He's an incredible person. Uh, I admire the work he does, um, you know, for somebody who works in marketing. Uh, You know, I love the work that I do, but when I see someone doing what Mike does, it it really, uh, it puts a smile on my face. And I know there's great people out there doing work like this. So I hope you enjoy this episode, uh, listening to it as much as I did recording it with Mike. Um, And uh, I just want to give a a quick little announcement that uh, this episode, uh, episode number 73, is going to be the final episode of the year for 2018, but I assure you we'll be back in 2019. The holidays are coming up. I'm giving all the people that work on Shareable uh, the rest of the year off on this. Uh, We have a couple guests uh, that pushed off until... um, uh, early in January. So really just wanted to, uh, give ourselves the time to, uh, regroup, take in this new format and get ourselves set up for success in 2019. So, uh, everyone out there, I hope you have a phenomenal holiday. I hope that you really have enjoyed, uh, these last two episodes of shareable that are in the new format. Uh, we're going to go back through and clean up a bunch of stuff on the website. We're going to be adding lots more shareables, whether they're books to read, uh, life lessons, different things that we've gotten from all of our guests. So we're going to be putting a tremendous amount of work into the show in 2019. Thank you again, all of you who have stuck with us through seasons one, two, and wherever the hell we are right now and whatever we're calling this. Uh, And we hope to see you back here in 2019. Uh, So without further ado, please give a listen to this amazing episode with Mike Domish. Back to Shareable. It's Jeff. Hi. Nice to see you all again. Actually, I can't see you. I can hear you. Uh, Today, I'm here with Mike Domish. Mike, how are you? I am fantastic. Very cool. Well, I want to start off with uh, a quick icebreaker. 
if you could have any one superpower, what would it be? This helps me get to know where we're going in this interview today. Ooh, that's a great question. What superpower would I have? Uh, you know, I think it would be the ability to know what's causing pain. Interesting. Okay, so now that you've told me that, tell everybody who you are and what you do, because I think it's going to contextualize that answer. The well, what I am, Mike Domish. I'm founder of the Date Safe Project and Mike Domish Speaks. And what I do is I speak all over the world. I'm an author, speaker, subject matter expert, specifically on creating a culture of respect and a culture of consent. So we work with everything from fifth graders to university students to U.S. military, literally from boot camp to two-star generals and admirals to the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, all over to, to major corporations and helping them create those cultures of respect from dealing with sexual intimacy to dealing with a corporate workplace atmosphere. This is such a relevant topic for right now, as I am sure you of all people know, um, given everything that's going on with the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, and all of these various uh, converging events that are happening in the public eye, things that are happening in politics, things that are happening in Hollywood, et cetera. So I'm sure you, when you first started this, it probably wasn't as, I guess, hot of a topic. It, not that this is a topic of something that's particularly um, exciting and sexy in, in a positive way. Oftentimes, we're dealing with things that are really um, sometimes tragic or traumatic. Um, what's life been like for you in the, in the past several years as kind of all of these movements are taking place? So I'm going to back up a little bit because my work started in this 29 years ago. And so I've been speaking on it in some form since its beginning for now the last 27, 28 years. So what's been happening recently has happened before. There's been times over the last three decades where this topic came to the forefront of the news cycle. And people go, oh, is, do you think now we're, we're turning the corner and things are going to be different than ever before? And I always have said, and I'm saying it now too, I, we have not turned a corner. What we have is a moment in time that's reflecting history and people are noticing. The question is, what will they do differently going forward? And without that conversation, nothing changes long term. So what's good about what's happening right now is it provides the opportunity for that conversation, but we all need to engage in it. What tends to happen is everybody hears Me Too, Time's Up, and they think of the villains that are out there and how often those villains are, but they don't look in the mirror and say, how have I contributed to this history? And that's what each of us needs to be able to do. I love that it, you're, you, when we met and, uh, and first spoke about this, I'm, I'm always struck by um, how accessible you make this topic. Uh, and especially in in the um, in the way that all of us are part of it, where you know usually we think of it as an external conversation. I think that's probably the default reaction. Oh, that's stuff that happens out there in the world, as opposed to thinking about it in terms of how we all play a part in it. I actually want to go back even one step further. You mentioned that you've been doing this for uh, twenty seven to twenty eight uh, some odd years, right? Yes. Uh, and when we first met. Um, that the origin of that didn't actually come out until a little bit later on. So I, I typically ask people that come on the show about someone that's impacted their life in a way. Um, and, and I kind of want to set you up for this because I think that there's someone that you can kind of turn to and talk about that has changed your life and you may or may not want to talk about it, but talk to us a little bit about maybe how you got started in this and, and the people that impacted you to, to go on this journey. Absolutely. And so I had no plans to be doing this work. I was actually a theater major in, in Loyola University in Chicago. And that's what I'd always wanted to be. I was going to be an actor. And I, and I was an athlete on campus. And I came back from practice. And there was a note on the door that said, Mike, call home immediately. 
And I thought, oh, uh-oh, what did I do? I actually thought maybe I was in trouble for something. You know how you have these weird paranoia thoughts as a college student, uh-oh. Uh, and so I called home, and that phone call would be my mom informing me that the youngest of my older sisters, I had three older sisters, had been raped. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing, Jeff. I was appalled. I was furious. I was enraged. I was confused. I was hurt. I was devastated. And over the next few months, I would go through a lot of personal pain of trying to figure this out, a lot of lost confusion as a college student. And then later that year, within those 12 months, I heard a speaker on my campus. I transferred to universities because I wanted to go back closer to home. And I was an athlete there, and we were mandated to hear a speaker. And I heard the speaker talk about this topic that I never heard anybody talk about. Keep in mind, this is 1990 at this point. The crime happened in 1989. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And that's where it all began. And what happened was when I realized I want to do this, it was my sister Sherry's strength and courage as a survivor that made me realize we need to change the conversation. We need to look at this differently. And I had to look in the mirror and go, what had I been taught by society about sex, about consent? about uh, how we make decisions and intimacy. And I had to look myself in the mirror and go, whoa, what I've been taught is messed up. And I'm not saying for my parents, some from society as a whole. And I had to look in the mirror. And I still have to look in the mirror to this day because we live in this society that biases us in many ways we might not even be aware of. And so that's what I loved what you said earlier about we all have to be able to look at this from our perspective. All of us are part of this conversation. Like people think, well, I've never sexually assaulted someone. I've never... I bet if we sit down and really talk, we've all made choices that were not based in respect mutually for our partners and ourselves. And so we can really dig down at that level. Now, now the person that you're referring to there is Sherry. Her strength, her courage as a survivor absolutely inspired me to do this work. And that's what I would think of when I think of survivors is the strength and the courage of survivors. It's amazing. I, I was struck by it the first time you told me about this uh, when we met in Toronto. And then, and then now it, it's still you know, the, this show is so much about the impact that people have on our lives. And it's kind of amazing to me to think that out of this tragic and traumatic event, you witnessed the strength of a family member, and that completely changed the course of your entire career, consequently changing the entire course of your life, the decisions that you made moving forward about what you would choose to learn about and develop an expertise in. And it's, it's kind of uh, an odd choice of words to say that this is the thing that you're most passionate about. But when we we've had these conversations about it. It's amazing how much your passion for this topic comes through because it really, it it has inspired me in the times that we've talked about it to really think of it in, in a personal way, as opposed to this sort of external series of events that I have an opinion on rather than thinking about like, well, let's really get into this. So, um, I want to, I want to kind of start with your story a bit, a bit about how you, um, how you, this journey has gone for you. And then I want to turn it back around at the end of that and talk a little bit more about how we as uh, listeners of the show, as human beings in society, et cetera, can, can be a little bit more aware of these things and start to take small steps towards positive change. So I get how you got into this, obviously. I get why you're passionate about it and why it's important to you. But how did you develop an expertise in this? Because a lot of the concepts around consent and around respect and things like that are very subjective in the experience of the person that we're talking to. And gray area is abound in this, in this world. How did you go about developing your expertise to be able to guide people in the right way? Well, at the time, you have to keep in mind, this is 1990, 91. There wasn't a lot out there. There were very few people even discussing the topic. 
I was 21, 22, and I looked 16. I wish I could tell you that I was exaggerating, but I'm not. And so that also made it difficult because who's going to let someone into a school to talk who looked younger than the kids in the school? And that was literally my case at times. Uh, and so, but there weren't even experts talking in schools because schools were too afraid of this. Universities were too afraid of this. The media wasn't talking about this. Look, if it wasn't an attacker in an alley or a park, you didn't hear about it. That's the only way you heard about it. And those are still very serious cases that need to be discussed, but that was the only version that we were hearing about. And so what I had to do is I had to self-study. I had to reach out to the few experts that I could find out there and learn from them and gather as much information. So I had to self-teach and I did that passionately. And when somebody taught me something, I implemented it immediately. So if you said, Mike, this is a way to do this, I just did it. And people say, well, didn't you evaluate? No, I just did it. Uh, and that allowed me to learn from that. And then I started speaking in schools. And what happened was I'm speaking in schools on a topic most people aren't talking about. The students are now telling me what's actually happening. So the information I'm gathering is way ahead of current research because research is always catching up from behind. I was getting currently what was happening. And this was giving me insight and expertise that wasn't out there. That's how I got the expertise. And what happened is schools were saying to me, hey, you're one of the leading experts on this. Nobody else is saying it this way. Nobody else is giving us this information. And they told me I was an expert. I didn't at one point go, hey, I'm the expert. They said, Mike, you realize you're one of the leading. And that's who decides. You don't get to decide if you're an expert. The, the world you work in does. And that's what they told me. They said, hey, you're bringing us unique perspectives. Now, let me be clear. It wasn't as simple that school suddenly said you're bringing, and I was getting booked and, and scheduled for all these schools. I struggled. I struggled mightily. I had to leave the business because I couldn't support my family. I ended up getting married and having kids. Couldn't, And so I had to do it very here or there. And in 2002, came back to it full time and struggled again. So I think what happens is that people hear where we're at today. And they hear, oh, you know, you're on the road 100, 110 days a year working in companies and universities and military leadership and school systems and parents. And wow, but they don't realize the struggle it took to get to this place. Uh, and that's really, really key that you have to so believe in your mission that, that whatever that dream is that you have ahead, you'll work through bankruptcy almost, or maybe even bankruptcy for some, to do what you believe is the right thing to do. It's that old saying of uh, 10 years to be an overnight success, right? Yeah, and I, people say right now, oh, the Me Too movement, your career must be taking off. And I said, are you, they act like it's an overnight. And I go, 30 years overnight. Well, here's the truth though, Jeff. My, my business hasn't had a big change in the last year. Here's why. The organizations and people who have deeply cared about this topic were already working with, with us or individuals like me. The people who didn't care and now because of Me Too or Time's Up, they're thinking, oh, we have to show we care. They go to the cheapest, quickest solution because they want to show they care versus actually caring. And we work with people who actually care. And so our world hasn't changed a lot in the last year because we were working with the people who cared from the start. Does that ever, um, does that ever, what's the way to phrase this, but ever get you down that like you you are you are literally trying to take on culture in a lot of ways and you are trying to get more people to care about something that is obviously deeply personal to you but is also exceptionally important and when you sense that in spite of how important the work that you do is and, and how passionate you are about that, that there are people out there that will just take the cheapest things that come along to pay lip service to the fact that they actually care about this how do you go about actually affecting real change in people that may be resistant. 
if if I can get in the room, I, I know because of our experience and the skills we've learned over the years, we'll get a great opportunity to shift paradigms. Just get me in the room. And, and that's our viewpoint. And the reason we say that is because we've been researched. We've had outside firms research our work, literally evidence-based research firms. And it shows we have statistically significant impact in one hour on behavioral beliefs and changes. So that's, that's profound for us to know and for our clients to know, get us in the room and let us do that. And so here's my view. When I get into a room, I'm not coming there to change your mind. I'm coming there to open a discussion with you. You'll choose whether to change your mind. I'm simply going to open a discussion with you. And if we can have an amazing conversation, there's a good chance that when people have amazing conversations, some light bulb goes off they never realized before, and they choose change. They choose transformation for themselves. That's the key. So you've been doing this a long time, and I'm, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot and see, uh, see if you've got one locked and loaded. But... Um, you know, you speak to all these different types of organizations. I'm sure you've been met with beautiful stories of people crying their eyes out, thank you for your work. I'm sure you've been met with people that sat there with their arms crossed and, you know, didn't buy it, buy a thing. I'm sure you've, over this 28 years, you've had every possible type of experience. Do you, do you have any good uh, examples or stories of times where you've gone in and you've really been able to notice a shift in someone based on either uh, maybe a a role play you've done or an activity or even just a lesson or some sort of light bulb going off for them because of something you've done? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's the thrilling part of this work. People ask, how can you be in such a depressing topic? And I say, there's nothing depressing about people making incredible changes in their lives. That, that's what motivates us to do this work. So before I answer a specific example, I'm going to back up a little bit because the cool thing is we, every show we're in front of, and I say show because I want it to be an experience when I'm with a room, whether it's a company or a school. Every group I'm in front of, they do a survey at the end online on their phones that we send them some materials they want. And the surveys show that regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of what organization I'm with, school, corporate, military, 93% of the audience agrees to behavioral changes when they leave the room. So knowing that right there makes our work thrilling because I get to know Jeff when I walk in the room We have a 93% opportunity here, 93%. So that means there might be 5% crossing those arms, but a 93%. And so that's what we focus on. Now, examples of where somebody comes in and I get the real antidote, like life changed, is what's cool is that sometimes I'm going back to the same place every year. Like they continue to bring me back and I love that. And so people keep coming back. So all the students at a college campus who saw me as a freshman will see me four times because they'll bring their friends back every year I'm on campus. And so they'll come up to me and go, this totally changed my relationship that I'm currently in. Uh, This totally got me out of a relationship and into a healthy one. I've met people who said, I never asked before you, now I ask on everything and it's changed my world. I've had people who, because of what they've learned, they believe their marriage occurred because of it. We once met someone who they met at our show and ended up getting married. Those are all wonderful, but the ones that are the most meaningful to me are when a survivor, we find out, came forward after being in our program because they felt safe, they felt strong, and they felt courageous. And that has happened many, many, many times. And that is why we do this work, to create a safe space. So both to hear the positive of healthy sexuality in their life, healthy relationships in their life, and 
somebody did do harm to me and I deserve to have my voice heard, both sides of that conversation. I mean, that is just, it's, it's refreshing that in a business can sometimes feel very, um, it can be depressing. Like it's amoral. It's all about, you know, grow the company, build profits, help people sell more stuff. It's really refreshing uh, to spend part of my Friday talking to someone who gets to do work that's actually this impactful and changing the culture. Um, well, thank you, Jeff. You know, and I think that's one thing. There are a lot of people in companies like you're, you're freaking, you're speaking of, you know, the immorality of a corporations, organizations, and a lot of people do see that right occurring and know that often profits drive. What's neat is the amount of people in HR out there, the amount of CEOs who do deeply care about their culture and who are saying, look, we need to lead, not be left behind. We need to lead. And that's really powerful to watch and to see them taking the action. Yeah. And, and you really touched on a, a thought that I had had a little while ago that I had, I had lost in it. You just brought it back for me. But um, I, I'm not sure if when we uh, last were, were together, I mentioned that I'm writing a book on leadership. And there's just so many things that I, I think just on the anecdotes you've just told about impacting change and being able to get people to um, you know, self-report behavior change and, and to... Um, create these cultures of respect and how it spans across personal to professional. There's so much of the work I'm trying to do with this book I'm writing on leadership and the work I want to do in leadership. We're going to have to put our heads together and talk more about that. But there's so oh, much. I would love that. You know, I mean, I think it actually, if, if you look at it, leadership starts with the mindset that comes out of the work that you're doing, right? Like how can you lead someone if you don't already have um, the mindset around creating a culture of respect about understanding consent. I mean, even just in, in having conversations, uncomfortable conversations, just getting consent can be one of those things that actually allows that conversation to flow smoothly. Yeah, let's go, let's go to a corporate setting. Yeah, and a that. common move in a corporate setting is to say you have to earn your respect here. It's a common thing everybody's heard. You need to earn respect. That alone is disrespect. Right there, you've said this person isn't good enough yet. It's a lack of dignity for another human being. What measurement do you get to use on me to choose whether I deserve respect or not? How messed up is that? And yet you hear about it in corporate America all the time. If you do this, that's how you're going to earn people's respect around here. How about they treat me with respect because I'm a fellow human being? How about they do it for that reason? But nobody's having that conversation. And that's what we need to be discussing. Look, if you want to say the way you move up the ranks here, is by doing A, B, C, and D. That's logical. That makes sense. But to say respect has anything to do with that, that's not okay. Because that means I get to create a standard that chooses whether you're treated with dignity and respect. And that's the standard. But here's the thing. Other get people get to use a different standard against the person who set that standard. And see the nightmare? Now we're always above people because we always get to choose who's worthy of my respect. I want to I want to go I want to take a left turn here and talk about something that's related because I'm very curious about how this is impacted. So you started back in 89, uh, 90, right? So this is when you started this whole journey. And back then we had uh, we didn't even have Google yet. Um, I think we were we in Prodigy days still. Um, so from the from a technology standpoint, if we're looking at the world that you were inhabiting at that time, it was slightly to put it mildly, different than it is today. Your work has progressed through a number of different eras of technology. 
And I'm really curious what kind of an impact that has made on cultures of respect, on our ability to be vulnerable or connected with one another. When I got started in social media, I was particularly fascinated by the idea that we could connect across time geography. We could be vulnerable with each other, find tribes of common interest, and really you know, uh, treat each other like human beings, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, whatever, because we're just simply computer avatars. I find that my, t- my perspective now is that I was totally naive. And what it has instead done is kind of swung in the opposite direction. I'd imagine that when we're talking about respect, irregardless of uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault or anything even to do with that side, but just in creating cultures of respect, and then you bring in all of that other stuff of, of you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and consent and personal relationships, et cetera. Have you seen any sort of uh, impact that you can attribute towards technology, either positively or negatively, um, that, that's affected how you do your work? Well, access, that's the difference. So when I say access, is that years ago, if you, and there's good and bad to this, what I'm about to refer to. Years ago, if you wanted to learn, let's say that you're a, a middle school, high school student, college student, and you want to learn about sex because you weren't taught it at home, and what you were taught at home was incomplete at best, where did you go? You had to ask someone. Mm-hmm. There, there was no search to go to. Uh, maybe go to a library, but then people knew what you were reading, right? So, so people were nervous about all these things. So you had to ask people and talk, and most people were afraid to do that, so they just didn't, right? Nowadays, your eight-year-old can do a search if they hear a word and find pornography in a way that never could have been discovered in the past. So access to information is a whole different ballgame. Now, on the flip side of that, if I'm a survivor, I can look for resources that I never could have found before. So there's some really positive to that access. The sad part is that it's unfiltered in when it can be age inappropriate, when it can be inappropriate in a workplace setting. It's unfiltered when it's coming at us. And we don't know which of this information is helpful, which could be harmful. And that's the danger in the completely unlimited access that's out there. And, and that's what technology has given us, completely unlimited access. So I'll say to parents all the time, porn isn't new. Let's say that I'm talking to somebody who is 40 and older. I'll say, look, 30 years ago when we didn't have the internet, if you want to look at a naked woman, regardless of of your gender, of your orientation, your identity. You want to look at a a naked woman in a sexual manner. You had three magazines you hoped somebody's, and typically the stereotype was somebody's father had. And as soon as I say that, the whole room starts laughing. And I go, and you can all name the magazines. And they all can. They're all like, yep. And they yell, and I'm talking corporate executive people can do this. (laughs) And, And parents can do this of teenagers. They'll yell, Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler. And I go, 30 years later, you can name the magazines. So funny, I got them right. I was saying them in my head. I got all right. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're saying that you, this current generation is just too sexual, over-sexualized and they're a bit perverted. And yet, 30 years later, you can name three magazines? So that hasn't changed. The, the desire to look and to learn and to be curious has not changed. The current generation is not more curious than you were. They just have more access. And I joke with parents, and you're jealous. And, so, they, and they laugh. They're like, there's some truth to that. Like, if you had had that access, are you telling me you never would have looked? You never would have researched? That doesn't mean the access they're getting is good. It doesn't mean it's healthy. But stop acting like something's wrong with them and say, what can I do to help them with this information they're getting? 
Yeah. That's Stop the conversation. Stop clutching your pearls and pretending you know exactly what would have happened if it was available that way. Right. And this is true of corporate America. Stop acting like your employees are the problem. Look in the mirror and say, how am I going to help them with whatever they're struggling with? I absolutely love that perspective. I, I often, uh, just in the, the book I'm writing on leadership, I, I talk about how the buck stops with me. You know, that as a leader, if something's going wrong in my culture, the first person I should be looking at is myself. And that's not to say that you have to carry the burden of being, you know, uh, of taking everybody else's faults on as your own and that like, you know, everybody else is, is absolved of any responsibility. It's all on you. It's just more that I think that's a really healthy place to look at is thinking about where you can do better and where you can learn to be better. Um, so I really appreciate that perspective that, you know, we, we, I think that we share. Um, I want to ask you kind of a, a, in closing on the, uh, on, on the work that you do uh, as, as it relates to, you know, the work that you do and the impact you've seen it on people, uh, how technology is increasing access and whether that can be good or bad. Do you find that you're optimistic about where we're going uh, having seen ebbs and flows of, you know, this conversation coming to the forefront and then being buried again, are we making enough progress that you're confident that one day we're going to kind of get there, wherever there might be? Or are you still, uh, or, or I guess not still, but do you, do you find yourself somewhat pessimistic that we're not making enough progress? Personally, Jeff, I couldn't do this work if I had the pessimistic view. I couldn't do it. It would be demoralizing. It would be burnout all day. And I know people that have that and they burn out. Uh, I am very optimistic. I'm not optimistic in my lifetime. But my job is to shift the meter closer and closer for the next lifetime. So if we've jumped a third of where we were from 30 years ago, and we have two thirds to go, maybe by the end of my lifetime, we're another third. And there's only a third left. And wow, what, it, what an awesome advancement that would be. And so it's working that constantly. And instead of getting caught on, why am I doing this? It's not going to be solved before I die. And realizing how much we are getting done while we're here, each of us. That's everyone listening right now. How much are you getting done while you're here? That's what it's about. Love it. Love it. Well, Mike, you have a tremendous amount to offer. I, I love learning more about, you know, all of the different ways in which people and technology have impacted your career. Your career is fascinating. I love your passion. I love that you work so hard on this. And since you have so much to offer, I'm going to ask you to share a couple things with us. These are what we call the shareables here on Shareable. So I'm going to ask you about uh, a couple different uh, things that you can impart to us that we can uh, share with our audience. Uh, so if you're ready, I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. Yes. First one, what's one book that every person should read? It could be literally any book that you think everyone should read. Aside oh. from your own, you can't be self-promotional in any of these. We're going to list all your stuff and give you a chance to talk about your stuff at the end. But what's one book everyone should no, read? I, I'm the same way on my own podcast. It, yeah, absolutely. So my book, oh, there's so many. I'm a, I'm a reader. I love books. Um, oh, shoot. I would, oh, Greatest Salesman in the World, which is not a sales book, even though people hear the title. Uh, Augmentino, uh, that's one that right comes think and grow rich. Uh, it's hard for me to come up with one. Still there? Yep. Oh, did it cut out? Yeah, cut out for just a second. You said um, uh, think and grow rich. You said Augmentino. Aug uh, yeah. Th so I, the greatest salesman of the world is by Augmentino. Think and grow rich is by Napoleon Hill. Yep. But I mean, there's so many. I, I love books. I love books. But I'm, I'll give those two because I'm, I'm only supposed to give one. Yeah. Okay. I'll take those two from you. Uh, Think and Grow Rich is a popular answer. And uh, we actually have a reading list with, with, of all of the books that our guests recommend. And um, as- okay, I'm going to give you one most people won't. Uh, I'll try to give you something original. Okay. Light, Life's Operating Manual, Tom Shattuck. Uh, was a major producer in Hollywood, did a lot of the Jim Carrey movies. Uh, very unique read. 
Okay, cool. Uh, we're going to take all three of them. Um, and, and what I was saying is that on the reading list, as people recommend the same book, we just put little thumbs up next to it. So you, and then we begin to rank them by like the ones that people always say. So like how to win friends and influence people is a pretty high ranking one. Think grow rich is pretty high. Um, all right. Next question. Uh, what is your favorite podcast? What's the one that you go to? Well, when I'm driving, sometimes I just need, and that's when I listen to them the most. I love a little breath of fresh air. So for that reason, it's wait, wait, don't tell me. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Okay, cool. I haven't heard of that one. That's so that's an NPR show. Okay, cool. We'll put that on the list. Uh, what's one application, mobile or desktop, that you just can't live without? Ooh, probably Evernote. Awesome. Great answer. I, I feel the same. It's in my doc. Um, what's one big lesson that you wish you learned earlier in your career? Do less better. Awesome one. Uh, what do you think is the most important skill of the future? Listening. Love it. And then what is one thing that everybody listening to this episode should go do today? Think about where in my life, just ask the question for yourself, where in my life uh, am I ensuring that my relationships are mutual? Mike, you've been an incredible guest. Um, I really appreciate you setting aside the time coming and talking with me. Uh, I want to give you a chance to tell everyone where they can find out about what you're working on, where they can go be social with you, where they can get involved, how they can help you, see you speak, whatever. I want to give you just the floor is yours. Tell people where they can go and get involved with what you're working on. Well, I know podcast listeners are podcast listeners, so I would love for them to check out our podcast. That's the Respect Podcast with Mike Damish on iTunes, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. If you're with a company or an organization, I'd love for you to go to mikespeaks.com. That's where we help companies and organizations. They'll bring me in to do speaking, training. If you're with a school, military, any other realm of the world, it's datesafeproject.org datesafeproject.org. And between those three resources, you can find everything about me and how to get a hold of me and reach me. Absolutely phenomenal. Mike, again, thank you so much for coming on. I think this episode was awesome. And actually, if I had to describe it in just one word, I think I would probably say it's shareable. Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Stone because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible. Shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahamitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 